Welcome back to another episode of RICF Levisor University, where we are currently exploring everything you ever wanted to know about RIA law and compliance, but we're afraid to ask. My name is Jeff Smith, and I'm the founder and managing attorney for Levisory and the CEO of RIA Compliance Firm. Levisory and RIA Compliance Firm primarily focus on the legal and compliance needs of both state and SEC registered investment advisors. Therefore, if you have any questions about any of this material that I'm covering in these episodes or want RIA Compliance Firm to conduct an initial free compliance assessment for your RIA, then please don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach me at jsmith at lawadvisory.com or 248-376-1480. So today we are uh, looking at SEC Rule 20647, which is known as the Compliance Rule. Uh, you might be asking yourself the question, well, haven't we been talking about compliance rules this whole time? And the answer is yes. However, this rule has become known as the compliance rule since this rule requires the establishment of what the SEC views as the heart and foundation of any successful compliance program. So in early 2004, the SEC established this rule that stated that the SEC considered it unlawful for any RIA to provide investment advice to clients unless the RIA has met three of the following conditions that we will discuss in great detail. So first, the RIA must adopt and implement written policies and procedures reasonably designed to prevent violation by the RIA and its supervised persons of the Advisors Act and the rules that the SEC has adopted under that act. An important thing to see within this first condition is that it requires the RIA's policies and procedures to be reasonably designed to prevent violation of every part of the Advisors Act and all other rules adopted by the SEC under the Advisors Act. This is why compliance manuals are usually huge. They're so large and, and, and detailed and why compliance programs require competent people to run them. When I say competent, I mean people that know the Advisors Act um, and what it requires and what all of the rules adopted under the Advisors Act say and mean. Um, it also requires an ability to apply the policies and procedures effectively within a given compliance environment made up of advisory professionals who, quite frankly, themselves don't usually know or understand the securities laws and rules. This is not to be taken lightly and not an easy undertaking. Uh, my hat goes off to anyone you know, serving in a compliance or legal role at an RIA since an enormous amount of responsibility falls on your shoulders. One additional important item to consider as part of complying with the first condition under the compliance rule, uh, to have written policies and procedures reasonably designed to prevent violations of the securities laws, is to perform a risk assessment. So let's talk about that. A risk assessment is something we help our clients with. One way to create an effective risk assessment is to first identify all applicable areas of the Advisors Act and the rules thereunder, along with other applicable securities laws such as the 33 Act, 34 Act, Investment Company Act, and the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, that there is a risk of the RIA or its covered persons violating. Uh, I would call this part um, a legal or regulatory risk inventory. Once all of these are identified as they apply to your firm, a matrix can be created briefly listing the legal reference to these specific laws, identifying the controls, the RIA has in place to detect or prevent violations of these laws, and then listing the part of the compliance manual that addresses these risks and controls through policies and procedures. This will, this will allow for gaps in the compliance program to be identified more easily. So let's talk about the next condition. The next condition under Rule 20647 
is that the RIA must review no less frequently than annually the adequacy of its policies and procedures established pursuant to the first condition that we just talked about above and the effectiveness of the implementation of these policies and procedures. This condition of the compliance rule has led to what people call in our business a 20647 annual review. Notice that this part of the rule does not require there to be a written report created as part of the annual review. However, a written report has become a best practice in the industry, and when we get into the Investment Company Act of 1940 in future episodes, we will uh, talk about the requirement applicable to investment companies that a report be created and presented to management. Understand that there are both pros and cons to having this report created. It is very useful uh, for there to be communication with management regarding the status of the compliance program and the review that was conducted. That's a pro. A con, however, is that this report may also be discoverable by the, discoverable by the SEC and others. The SEC almost always asks for a copy of the report during their examinations, so be prepared for that. As part of this annual review process, I believe it is essential to have legal counsel engaged as part of the process to be able to retain the attorney-client privilege over any sensitive communications. If legal counsel is not engaged as part of this review, then there are no protections um, and all communications related to the annual review are fully discoverable by the SEC or even a plaintiff in litigation. This is the approach that Levisory, my, my law firm, takes with all of our clients for whom we do an annual review or any mock audits. I cannot stress enough how important this is since there are very few annual reviews that do not identify gaps in compliance. If no gaps are found, usually it's because someone is not looking hard enough, quite frankly. So as part of what one might want to put into their annual review report, if one is desired, um, one can look to the Investment Company Act of 1940 for some helpful guidance um, and, uh, and possible guidelines around best practices. So let's talk about that. Under the Investment Company Act, an investment company, and we're talking about you know, mutual funds, interval funds, or exchange-traded funds, um, they must annually furnish the fund board uh, with a written report on the operation of the fund's policies and procedures and those of its service providers. The report must address at a minimum the following. Number one, the operation of the policies and procedures of the fund and each service provider since uh, the last report. Number two, uh, any material changes to the policies and procedures since the last report from the prior year. Number three, any recommendations for material changes to the policies and procedures as a result of the annual review. Okay, and number four, any material compliance matters since the date of the last report from the prior year. When the SEC refers to a material compliance matter in this context, um, in its rule applicable to investment companies, it means those compliance matters about which management needs to know in order to oversee fund compliance. Another important aspect of an annual review is that it, it is supposed to be done over a year period rather than after the fact or all at one time, you know, in a rush to get it done. Further, one of the best ways to comply with the rules requirements uh, to review the adequacy of the policies and procedures and the effectiveness of their implementation is to perform testing. So the RIA should be able to prove to the SEC that it has performed a review throughout the year and has performed testing of its policies and procedures. 
The SEC almost always asks for proof of testing during their exams. Since each RIA is unique in many ways, the testing should be designed with a focus on those policies and procedures that are um, the most at risk of being violated within the RIA or those that if violated may result in the greatest harm to the RIA's investors. That's just one, one recommendation. Um, the last condition that must be met under the compliance rule is that the RIA must designate a chief compliance officer, who is a supervised person as well, responsible for administering the policies and procedures that the RIA adopts under the compliance rule. The SEC in its adopting release in 2004 clarified that an advisor's chief compliance officer should be competent and knowledgeable regarding the Advisors Act and should be empowered with full responsibility and authority to develop and enforce appropriate policies and procedures for the firm. Thus, the compliance officer or the chief compliance officer should have a position of sufficient seniority and authority within the organization to compel others to adhere to the compliance policies or procedures. You can also um, outsource, you know, your CCO position if you like. That's something that RICF actually does for its clients, um, and it's a service that's provided. Uh, now, now that we've reviewed um, 20647 in more depth, hopefully it makes more sense why our industry refers to this as the compliance rule. Since this brings us to the end of our discussion around Rule 20647, if you have any questions about any of this material or want RIA compliance firm to conduct an initial free compliance assessment for your RIA, then please don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach me at jsmith at levisory.com or 248-376-1480. Please note that all engagements are usually conducted in conjunction with Levisory to have the attorney-client privilege and confidentiality applied to client communications. This allows our clients to be honest and open with us without the fear of such communications ending up in the hands of the regulators or even plaintiffs. Uh, please be sure to view our next episode since you won't want to miss our discussion of the other rules adopted by the SEC under Section 206, since these make up a large amount of an RIA's compliance program and its policies and procedures. So long for now. Thanks so much for your time, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode. Thanks for watching.